Good morning, friends. As we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, uh, we've discovered that the, one of the emphasis of Mark, the writer, is to reveal to us the true identity of Jesus Christ and then also to um, you know, encourage us to receive Jesus Christ as the solution to whatever chaos we may be facing. And this was particularly uh, relevant to the people who first received this letter, the ones who were in Rome in the church that Mark was an assistant pastor to. And they were, of course, enduring the chaos of Nero, the, the crazy emperor who was killing Christians for sport in all sorts of horrendous ways. So their chaos was significant as well. Ours may be what it is, but uh, they certainly used and valued this book and the truths within it to navigate life. So we've, we've been encouraged by our study here to look to Christ when we face chaos, to understand that, that Christ Jesus is superior over chaos, supreme over chaos, and in fact uses chaos to conform us into his image. I don't know if you've recognized that yet in the Christian life, but when you go through hard times, you run to a source of strength that you know is sure, and that source is Christ, and in doing so, you become more and more like him the more you run to him. And that's what we have here in front of us. We, we've seen Jesus respond to all sorts of negative circumstances on different occasions. We've seen him dealing with the chaos of of serious illness, frayed relationships, severe weather, even death. Um, th these are the same kinds of chaotic circumstances that we face on a regular basis. Um, we each in every instance of our lives face chaos. I know that uh, some people may not identify certain things as chaos, but each of us has chaos because we're humans. Uh, we face uh, chaos all the time. Um, we've learned how to face challenges by watching Jesus deal with chaos and his circumstances and his disciples' experience. Uh, the things that we've been learning is that when his disciples faced chaos, when Jesus dealt with chaos, Jesus always had a divine perspective because he was God, right? So naturally he would have a divine perspective, but this was new territory to his disciples. This is something they had to learn, something we have to learn, to, to look at the chaos in our lives from a divine perspective instead of the perspective that normally confronts us, one that you know, results in being frustrated, upset, frazzled, whatever. Um, we're learning to have a different perspective, aren't we, as we look at the chaos in the first century with Jesus and his disciples. Uh, instead of thrashing around like we might normally do, I think we're trying to view our chaos from his perspective, from the perspective of Christ. And we, we're beginning to learn to, to see our situation from God's perspective. And I think that's helpful. And I'm, I'm so thankful that we've been able to, you know, travel this path together over the past few months. My goal today in this sermon uh, is 
is that you'll begin to see your chaos in your life, whatever it is, from Jesus's perspective. His perspective is always divine. Ours is normally human. But I, I want to encourage you by what we read and study this morning to see what you're going through. Think of the chaos that you're in, whether it's at, at home or at work or uh, wherever you find yourself. I want you to see that chaos that you're facing through Jesus's perspective. Uh, what, what is your perspective on your current crisis, your current, your current chaos? Would you say that this is a divine perspective? I have a divine perspective on my illness, on my, my finances, on my relationships. Is my perspective a divine perspective? Uh, the chaos in our text today is, is dealing with thousands of hungry people. If you attended our Monday Thursday event this year, we planned for 125 to feed 125 people, and 175 of you showed up. So uh, we were doing our best to divide the fish and loaves um, to make it work out. But we're talking about a substantially bigger miracle than what we experienced a few Thursdays ago. We're talking about 25,000 people that had no food. And you're saying, well, wait a minute, I thought it was 5,000. Well, it was 5,000 men, all right? We're, we're gonna get into the detail of that in a second, but I want you to understand the significance of this important miracle. Uh, this, this particular miracle served as kind of a, a, a climactic uh, capstone, if you will, of Jesus's Galilean ministry. Up north is the province of Galilee, near the Sea of Galilee. Follow the Jordan straight south, you have Judea and Jerusalem where Jesus's life ends. This particular miracle that we've heard read this morning that I'm gonna preach on this morning was the kind of the, the last significant teaching and activity of Jesus during the first half of his ministry in Galilee. From here on, he goes south, heads into Jerusalem and everything he faces there, which results in his death, ultimately. But this particular um, miracle was performed just before the Passover, most likely. You remember it said that the grass was green, so it was probably in um, late March, early April, before the Passover. Um, after that, it got brown quickly in that region. So they were sitting on green grass, which means it was probably in the early spring that this miracle took place around April 8029, if you're interested in that kind of stuff. But now let's think about the, the purpose of these miracles. The, the purpose of these miracles was, went well, well beyond meeting of material or physical needs. As in every case of Jesus' miracles, it was more than just healing, restoring, feeding, you know, calming storms. There was always more involved, and you'll have to look around in the corners of the story to see and find these things, but they always reveal something of the identity of Christ, the character of Christ Jesus, and then also meet a spiritual need of those present, whether it's the one being healed, the one being fed, or the one watching these things done, or reading about them, in this case, you and me. 
uh, <clears throat> Jesus not only intended to resolve the chaos that he was facing because of his love for people, but he also intended to reveal himself and his purpose for being on the planet when he solved chaos. So I'm going to walk you through three different points here in this text today and show you what we can learn about Jesus Christ, what we can discover about his purpose also. All right? First thing I want you to see is Jesus the greater Moses. Jesus the greater Moses. If you look closely, you'll see a, a striking connection between Moses who brought salvation to the people of Israel in his day and this Jesus here who is providing for the needs of these hungry folks uh, around the Sea of Galilee. Theologians sometimes call Jesus the greater Moses because he was foretold of by Moses, anticipated by the people of Israel to be the prophet that Moses said would be coming, the greater Moses. And so the first connection that I want you to see between Jesus and the great Old Testament prophet Moses was this, the location. Look where Mark said they were. It said they were in a desolate place. Uh, it, it wasn't the same place that Moses was with the people of Israel in marching around Mount Sinai for 40 years, but that was also a desolate place, was it not? Yeah, so Mark, wanting to help you connect the dots in your brain between Jesus and the fulfillment of Moses' prophecy, the greater Moses showing up once again, is this, the desolate place. It was desolate there on the eastern side of the Jordan. It was desolate in the wilderness of Sinai. And so Moses was one who ministered to the needs of the people in the wilderness of Sinai. Jesus was the one who ministered to the needs of the people in the wilderness of Galilee. Both desolate places. There's your first connection with the intended connection between Moses and Jesus. <clears throat> now, the miracle itself was also something that Mark wants us to connect the dots on. What was one of the greater miracles that Moses performed in the wilderness? Wasn't it to provide manna from heaven, bread from heaven? And what do we see Jesus doing here? Providing bread from heaven, right? Not just in the form of, of uh, the bread they were eating, but as we'll see in a second, himself as the bread from heaven. And this is where I'm going to end my sermon today. Not now, don't get excited when I get there. So, all right. So the first is the, the desolate place. The second is the bread of heaven. Moses provided bread from heaven, literally manna fell from the sky every night for how many years to provide for the hunger of the people of Israel. Jesus comes, has a bunch of hungry Israelites, and he also provides bread out of thin air, bread from heaven for the people to eat. This is another correspondence between Jesus and Moses. And this, this provision of bread symbolizes God saving and rescuing his people from a real practical need, hunger. There's that connection. The final connection that I think Mark wants us to recognize here between Moses and Jesus is the orderliness of the people. 
You remember how the people of Israel were organized in the Old Testament? You remember their camp? There was 12 tribes, and the tribes were organized very distinctly. They were required to camp in certain spots, certain rows, certain columns to orchestrate organization and also to picture some divine things, which I don't have time to get into, but it's pretty, not pretty, very interesting. Jesus did something similar right here. What's he say to his disciples? He says, have them sit in hundreds and fifties. All right, so before this command, they were clamoring all over the place, not just to get to Jesus, but looking for food. I'm not sure how that went down, but it was, it was kind of a disorganized group of people until Jesus said, sit down in groups of 50 or 100. And they did. And so there was these 25,000 people organized in a fashion that reflected the organization of the people of Israel in the wilderness. Intentionally, so that we would see the connection between Jesus and the great prophet Moses. Jesus was the one who fulfilled the prophecy of Moses himself, of that prophet who would come one day and save the people. And so here Jesus shows up and does the very thing that was predicted he would do. So, first, Jesus, the greater Moses. Secondly, I want you to see this, Jesus, the exemplary shepherd. And I think if there is a, uh, a intended highlight, this is it. Jesus, the exemplary shepherd. Look at verse 34. He says, when he, that's when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Like a sheep without a shepherd. Shepherds are important to each and every one of us. Uh, even if we don't realize it. We've all been shepherded in one way or another. Uh, parenting, one could say, is a form of shepherding, taking care of the needs of children, feeding them, clothing them, meeting needs of children. We've all been through that routine with our parents. We've been shepherded by them. Whether it was good shepherding or poor shepherding, we've been shepherded by our parents. We, in turn, if we have children, shepherd our children to the best of our abilities. We provide for them like shepherds would provide for their sheep, like Jesus provides for his sheep. We've all been shepherded. We all appreciate shepherding, whether we realize it or not. Um, in the family, we, we see this with parents and children, husbands and wives. When we come to church, we see it again. We're, we're shepherded by one another in church. We have small group leaders. We have Sunday school teachers. We have pastors and elders who are all concerned with the shepherding of God's people. We've been shepherded. You're being shepherded right now. All right, so this is what we see. We see the focus of Mark on the, the shepherding that Jesus provided for these people there that were with him. Um, this, is, this is important to hear. As much as we've been shepherded throughout our lives, there is one shepherd that stands out above all the rest that we've experienced, and his name is Jesus Christ. And here, what Jesus does, how Jesus feels, what he's thinking is an example for us as we, in turn, shepherd those in our lives. 
You are shepherding someone in your life. You are ministering them, taking care of them in one way or another, providing for them, just like Jesus does for us. So when we have an example like Jesus set before us as the shepherd, we ought to pay attention here. He is the good shepherd. The first thing that we see as an example of shepherding, exemplary shepherding, is thinking of others. Look at verses 30 through 32 once again. The apostles returned, that is the 12 that he sent out, remember a chapter ago, he sent them out to minister, to preach, to throw out evil spirits and to heal people. Well, they've returned from this short missions trip to discover that their friend John the Baptist has been executed. So these guys are not only worn and weary from traveling by foot throughout all of the Galilean territory, preaching, teaching, healing, etc., living by faith for a few months, coming back to Jesus, hearing that their friend John the Baptist had been executed. They were weary. They were fatigued. They were needing rest. And Jesus, being the good shepherd that he is, recognized it. We see that Jesus was thinking of them, not himself. He said, let's go to a desolate place. Let's get away from the crowd. Let's restore. Let's rejuvenate. And so Jesus takes them to this retreat. And of course, we know how the story goes. We just heard it read. When they get there, everybody had shown up in front of them before him. So this retreat turned into a, a ministry trip of sorts. But my point is that Jesus knew his disciples intimately and met their needs because he was thinking of them. He, he knew they needed rest, so he, he offered it. Um, observing the shepherd, though, in Jesus is not where our Christian life ends. It's, it's not like observation is the end of the Christian experience. It's observation and then what? application, right? You, you apply what you've observed. You, you take note, you learn, and then you apply. So we must move beyond observation to application. So the question I think Mark would have for us, at least I have for you, is how aware are we of the shepherding opportunities that are around us, around you? Have you paid attention to the circumstances you find yourself in currently? How aware are you of the shepherding opportunities in which you currently are living? A fundamental element of being a a shepherd at heart is to think of others, always. What do they need? How can I meet that need? That's thinking like a shepherd. When we walk into a room, we, we need to have a shepherd's eye. If we're going to have a shepherd's heart, we need to walk into a room with a shepherd's eye, looking around at people in the room, trying to figure out the needs that are represented. Is there someone here that's standing alone in this room? And how can I help them? Does someone need a warm greeting, a short prayer, a word of encouragement, even down to minor things like this? Is there a piece of trash on the floor that I could pick up to make this place a little more welcoming? If you're going to be a shepherd like Christ, you have to have a shepherd's heart. To have a shepherd's heart, you have to have a shepherd's eye. Are you paying attention to the environment in which you're in to be used as a shepherd in the lives of people that God puts you with every day? At work, at home, in your neighborhood, at church, 
Do you have a shepherd's heart, a shepherd's eye? This is why Paul told the Philippians to prefer one another, to consider others as more important than yourself. It seems that when we actually think that you're more important than me, I, I will be quick to, to meet your needs. I'll be quick to get into your space and ask you how you're doing and to offer you some help if you needed some. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people complain that no one said hello to me at church last week. And that this is the challenge of close friendships at church. We, we want to build deep and meaningful relationships here, don't we? This is one of the benefits of being part of a local church. But in that, there comes a challenge. When I, when I see my friends in church, I run to them to kind of reacquaint myself, even though I just saw them last week with my friend, and talk about the latest thing happening in our lives. And in the process, I run right by someone who's hurting, standing in the room next to me. I, I've missed, I've lost my shepherd's eye because I ran to something comfortable and missed something obvious. This is what we see Jesus doing. He, he doesn't miss those kind of things. He's the good shepherd. We, we, we cannot afford to run past hurting people in our church, in our homes, in our places of work, and claim to be a caring shepherd. So, how do we deal with this? How do we deal with our natural propensity, our natural reactions? Here's one way. Before you enter any room, whether it's here at church, at home, at work, ask God to help you see the needs of others that are going to be in that room. Lord, help me see the needs of people in this room. Get my eyes off myself, and everything needs to be about me here, so that get the eyes off myself. Help me see hurting people, obvious opportunities. We need to be quick to reach out, quick to shake a hand, quick to say hello, ask a question, say a prayer. The second thing we see Jesus shepherding, in Jesus shepherding, is compassion. Having compassion is shepherding. Look at verse 34 again. He went ashore and saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. This is what good shepherds have, a compassionate heart. Not just a sensitive heart, but a compassionate heart. The word compassion in the original language is splachnon. And if you say it as it should be pronounced, it's splachnon. That sounds guttural, doesn't it? It's because it's supposed to. It, it, splachnon, or the compassion that Mark is defining or describing about Jesus, comes from the original meaning from the bowels. It's his, his feelings were welling up with inside of him. He had actual pain welling up from within because of what he saw. He saw the needs of the people so clearly it pained him. He had pity. He had compassion. He had splachnon for the people. In the, in the Gospel of Luke that describes the same story, by the way, this story and the resurrection are the only miracles that are recorded in all four Gospels. So it's an important miracle. Luke says that as Jesus was approaching the shore, he saw the people running along the shore. Jesus was in the boat. This crowd of people running along the shore, keeping an eye on Jesus' boat so that they could meet him at the dock. 
And in that second, in that moment, Luke describes, Jesus had compassion and pity on the people. He saw their sick. He saw, he knew the conditions of their souls. He had pity on them. And as a good shepherd, he wanted to meet that need. He had compassion. When D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist, was developing his good and very large Sunday school ministry in Chicago back in the mid-1800s, I mean, it was huge. There were other churches in Chicago, but they all paled in the size of D.L. Moody's Sunday school program. And at one point, someone asked a young, a young boy who was walking past church after church after church to get to D.L. Moody's Sunday School, why he was traveling so far and past so many churches when he could, didn't have to. He could stop at any church along the way. And, and the, the young boy's answer was, they love people over there. I don't know what that says about all those other churches, but we know what it says about D.L. Moody's ministry. They love people over there. It's been said if a church will just love people, they'll break down the doors to get in here. How good are we, Sun Valley Church, at loving people, having compassion for people? This is such an important part of being a shepherd, is genuinely caring about people to the point of pain in your bowels, like Jesus. So are we good at loving people, Sun Valley Church? Do we reach beyond our comfort zones and welcome other people into our circle, especially those who are unfamiliar with us? It's easy to run up to friends who we enjoy, and we've already established some comfort, but to reach outside that comfort zone to people that we're uncertain about, are we willing to do that here? Until we are, friends, we won't be the, the church that God wants us to be. So the encouragement, of course, is to invite people into your circle, especially those you're not familiar with. Invite them into your home. Invite them into your gatherings. When, when the last time you had a gathering, think about this. When, the last time you had a gathering, who was there? Was there anybody at that gathering that you weren't real familiar with? Did you invite someone outside your circle? Um, like Jesus would do. So being warm and welcoming like Jesus is being compassionate like Jesus. It's being inclusive like Jesus. It's showing pity. And it seems that people are pretty keen on whether or not we genuinely love them. The third thing we see here relating to shepherding, Jesus' exemplary shepherding, is found also in verse 34. Look at that verse again, and I'll highlight it with my reading. When he, that's Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And what's he do for these shepherdless sheep? And he began to teach them. How simple of an answer is that to what is shepherding? Here it is, teaching teaching them. It means to teach. And Jesus demonstrated that it means to shepherd people by simply teaching them. That's one of the greatest needs in the Christian life, is for you to learn of the things of God. And how do you learn of the things of God? But by being taught the things of God. 
We need to grow, we need to learn, we need to apply, and this is what teaching does in our experience. We hear something, we go, aha, and we walk away taught and apply it. That's why at Sun Valley Church, we do a lot of preaching and teaching. It's because we want you to become like Christ. We want you to grow into Christ's likeness. We want you to reflect the image of your Savior. It says, Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that God has granted us the power to, to have everything we need for life and godliness. So God has granted us the power to, that pertains to all things about life and godliness through a knowledge of him. How do you grow in Christ-likeness? How do you get what you need to live the Christian life? Peter says, one who was watching Jesus on this day feed 5,000, Peter said it's through a growing knowledge of Jesus Christ. How do you get that growing knowledge of Jesus Christ? By being taught. That's how. The way to being Christ-like is through being taught of Christ. That's not complicated, is it? The way I become like Jesus is to understand Jesus. So we need to grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ, and that happens through teaching. This is why we want you here every Sunday. And this is why I'm so happy that most of you here are here every Sunday. This is also why we want you to attend our Sunday seminars or our Sunday school, that time, that hour between our two services. Why? Because we teach you things about Jesus and about his word during that hour. This is why we emphasize you attending a small group, because it's in the small group where you are taught, not just by your small group leader, but by the discussion you're having with other Christians on how to walk like Jesus. The application of this knowledge, the stuff you're learning, really does take place in the context of a small group. So we're, we're trying to always help you see the importance of being taught in the Sunday morning worship service, in the Sunday seminar, in the small group, etc. This is what shepherding is. And if we're not shepherding you, we're not church, right? <laughs> if there's no shepherding going on, this, this isn't church. Part of teaching, since we're talking about the teaching of Jesus, I want you to see a, a, a detail of Jesus' teaching that I think is interesting and I think important. Look what he says here uh, to the people when they asked him in verse 36, to, Jesus says, why don't you send these people away? They're hungry. And look what Jesus says, verse 37, you give them something to eat. <laughs> so part of teaching is challenge, challenging people to think beyond what they're comfortable with, into realms of, of the supernatural instead of the natural. Instead of what comes naturally to the brain, what doesn't come unless you're pushed there. So Jesus says, you feed them. And keep in mind, we got 12 guys available here and 25,000 out there. Jesus says to these 12, you feed them? Well, this is part of good teaching. Challenge, challenging people out of their comfort zones. <clears throat> would you be befuddled if you were one of the 12? How would you respond to that comment by Jesus, you feed them. You'd be like this, 
Yeah, right, good. Uh, let me tell you how they got to 25,000. So there was 5,000 men, right? When they were counting men, they were usually husbands. And so 5,000 men had 5,000 wives, which makes them 10,000. And in the Jewish culture, small families were not the norm. Large families were the norm, kind of like Sun Valley Church, you know. We have a prolific parenting ministry here in our church. So we have 10,000 just with husband and wife, and uh, three children would be a small family in Jewish culture. So, but let's just take three for every couple. What's that make? 25,000. So at minimum, there was 25,000 people that were hungry in this setting. <laughs> what, were the, what were the disciples or the apostles by now? They're called apostles here in Mark 6. What were the apostles thinking? They were thinking human possibilities, right? What can we do here? Let me, let's think this out. Let's settle down here. Let's, let's get this figured out. I got an idea. I know how we can solve the hunger problem of all these people. Let's send them away if they're not here, right? <laughs> they're not our problem. That's what they said, send them away. That was their first solution. And Jesus said, no, you feed them. And then they go, wait a minute. You know how much money it would take to buy enough food for 25,000 people? Eight months wages, 200 denarii is eight months wages. That's a lot of money. Let's take an offering, right? Let's, let's go into the closest 7-Eleven and buy some frozen burritos for everybody. So their, their thinking, their solutions were limited to human possibility, like yours and mine would be. Their perspective was a human perspective, not a divine perspective. Uh, but Jesus' Jesus's perspective was divine. And so the situation in front of them was not a problem. One of the, the things that I did when I was a high school soccer coach is I would require our players to memorize 12 um, statements. There's one of my players here today. I could call her up or she, probably, she could probably tell you 10 of the 12 at least because I'd ask them all the time. And, and the, one of my favorites was this is an opportunity, not a what, Ella? Not a threat. <laughs> so this is, <laughs> thank you, I'm glad you remembered that. <laughs> this is an opportunity, not a threat. This is what Jesus probably said to these guys. This is an opportunity, not a threat. Nothing can possibly go wrong here. No matter what happens, we're okay. Win or lose, we're okay. All right, so Jesus here is saying this is an opportunity, not a threat. A, a good shepherd and a good leader is someone who sees the potential in the problem and is willing to act by faith to accomplish God's will. You, you see it from a divine perspective, not the limitations of our human thinking. Trying to solve problems and chaos only from a human perspective seriously limits our options, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. If we just had more money, if, if we just had more people, if we just had more time, then we could solve this thing. Well, those are all human options. The disciples were focused on finding a human solution 
sending people away or taking an offering and finding a store, instead of turning to Jesus, the, the solution to chaos who's standing right next to him. Instead of listing all of our resources from which we can solve our chaos, maybe we ought to attempt to look at our situation not as a threat, but as an opportunity to see God do something special. Trust him and his resources. When Jesus said, you give them something to eat, I think it was pretty shocking to these 12 guys. But he said this to make a point. And it was made, clearly, wasn't it? Like I said, this miracle and the resurrection were the only four miracles recorded in all four Gospels. It made a huge, excuse me, huge impact on these guys and on the people. Which is this whole idea of, of challenging people and teaching as a means of shepherding is something I actually keep in mind when I'm studying to preach. If you sit here for a few weeks, maybe a few months at the longest stretch, and you're not challenged in your thinking, I'm not preaching well. You need to be challenged in your thinking. I need to make you uncomfortable from time to time because that discomfort is what pushes you into a divine perspective. You have to be forced that direction or you don't go, right? It's like physical therapy. Without pain, there's no gain, right? This is what's going on with these guys. It what happens with us nowadays. So in order to get us to embrace God's perspective, which we're naturally resistant to, we must go through periods of wrestling, mental wrestling with what we're hearing taught, with what we're being challenged to do. Like, wait a minute, you want me to actually bypass a friend here on Sunday morning and risk offending them so I can go talk to somebody I don't know? Exactly, yes. That's exactly what I want you to do. So if you walk past me and do this, I know why. All right? (laughs) And if I do that to you, you know why. So So the the disciples really were out of options. Uh, They had no way to accomplish the command, you feed them. No human solution would do to the hunger chaos. Jesus wanted them to wrestle with their limited perspective. And they did. Look what Jesus does in verses 41 through 44. He shows us the next way to shepherd. Meeting physical needs is actually shepherding. These people were hungry, he fed them. Meeting physical needs. The fact that Jesus could create food out of thin air was completely uh, out of bounds in the minds of the disciples. I'm sure that didn't cross their minds. Their their eyes were on the chaos, not the solution. So when Jesus asked them how much food we had, I bet you the disciples said to themselves, are you kidding me? What do you mean how much food do we have? (laughs) Uh, When we get to John's gospel, he fills in the gaps with this story. We find out that Andrew found a young boy who had a young lunch, a small lunch. Young boy, small lunch. Five loaves and two fish. A simple lunch for a small boy. And I I can imagine Andrew going, 
this guy's got a couple fish. Um, then Jesus told the disciples to group the people, like I said, hundreds and fifties, and let's start feeding them. I'm sure that the people in that, in that moment, when they started getting organized and probably waiting for the, the food trucks to show up or something, not sure, but like the curiosity was growing, no doubt, at this moment, um, and then it began to happen. It's not told how it happened. It, we just see that either piece by piece, basket by basket, or who knows how, the food got to everybody. And it says there was plenty of food. Everyone ate and was satisfied. Jesus met their physical need in that moment. This is what Jesus does. He, he satisfies. Um, he, he fills souls in a similar way that he fills stomachs on that day. They were satisfied. Jesus actually fills more than expected and necessary. There are 12 baskets left over. Here's something I want to challenge you with. You like challenge. We've just established that. Are you satisfied in your Christian life? Are you satisfied with Jesus? If you're not, you've come to the wrong Jesus. Are you satisfied with Jesus? Jesus satisfies. This Jesus satisfies. If you're not satisfied, you haven't come to this Jesus. You're looking for something else. When Jesus fills, it's abundant, overflowing, and there are leftovers. I think it's important to, for us to keep in mind stories of Jesus' power like this one. Especially when we're going through hard times, when we're experiencing chaos. As we remember these stories, we, we must remember that Jesus, this Jesus, still lives and still satisfies. According to John's version of this story in John 6, um, more took place. What I want you to see here in, in Andrew bringing this young boy with his small lunch, uh, I, th I think is an important lesson for us. A lot of times we, th we sit here and we think, oh, I could never do what what John does or Pastor John does by preaching. I could never be the small group leader that that you know Dennis is or I can never be the teacher the elder the fill in the blank of so-and-so I just don't I here we have a small boy with a small lunch being used by God to minister to 25,000 people what's the point well let me say this first or ask this, could Jesus have made all this food appear out of thin air? I think so. He made the universe out of thin air. I think he can pull off a couple fish and loaves of bread. Certainly he could have, but he chose not to. He asked them to feed them. Then he asked them, who has food? He could have just gone like this, and every, everybody could have had a sack lunch in their hand. He didn't do that. He took this gift, was given by a young boy, unnamed, small lunch. He gave it to Jesus, and Jesus starts doing this, multiplying it. 
There's a story for us here, and it's this. It's not the excellence of your talents or gifts. It's not the size of your financial offering. It's not the, 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 the brilliance of your conversation or teaching ability. It's the sacrifice with which it's given that matters. It, it's giving it sacrificially that God uses. Young boy, small lunch. The widow's two-penny offering, Jesus says, was the greatest offering of the day. This widow put in two pennies into the offering plate. Jesus said it was the greatest offering of the day because she gave out of necessity. She had great need. She gave all that she had, but it was only two pennies. But Jesus himself said it was the greatest gift of the day. So you may not be the most eloquent person, the most well-off person financially, uh, the most striking individual in the room. All God wants is your sacrifice. That's it. And we see this here, as plain as day. A gift from a young boy met the needs of thousands. So, simple, ordinary gifts are what God uses. Simple, ordinary gifts are what God uses. The size quality really isn't the issue. Finally, let's look here a little more closely at John 6. Mark doesn't complete the story. He completes it for himself because he's focusing on the identity of the solution maker, the, the answer to chaos, and he does so in his story. But for our purposes, I want to lead you into the Lord's Supper here that we're going to serve you in a minute by taking you to John 6. In Mark, he just says, Jesus had compassion on them and began to teach them many things. John tells us what he was teaching. John, after feeding the 5,000 or the 25,000, says, Jesus said, this bread that you're eating is like my body. If you want to be nourished from this bread, you must eat this bread. And if you want to be nourished from me, you must eat my body. My body is like this bread. And it goes beyond that. Jesus said, also, this drink you're drinking, whatever they were drinking, he goes, that's like my blood. In order to benefit from my blood, you must drink my blood and eat my flesh. That almost offends us, doesn't it? <laughs> it's kind of grotesque to think about. Again, Jesus is pushing the envelope to get people to grasp the supernatural, the, the, the super important, if you will. So what does it mean? What did Jesus mean? Eat your flesh and drink your blood? Well, there was 25,000 people there that heard that teaching. All 25,012 were fed. Guess how many were left after Jesus taught? Twelve. The rest of them came, got their fill, and then left because of his teaching. Now, if you want, turn to John 6 with me. John chapter 6. And I want you to turn to verse 67 through 69. Listen to the conclusion of this event. It's awesome. 
So the mass of crowds had their physical needs met. Jesus offered a spiritual solution to their problems. They weren't interested, they walked away. And Jesus turns to the 12 and says this, Jesus said to the 12, not to the 25 and 12, to the 12 because the others had already left, John records, do you want to go away as well? Are you gonna, when I, when I challenge you with this kind of preaching and teaching, are you gonna walk away offended also? Jesus says to the 12, and Simon Peter, we can always count on Simon Peter, right? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Friends, is that our answer? When we are presented with Christ, is your answer, we have nowhere else to turn? It must be. To whom shall we go? We got nothing else, Lord. No one else has the answers to chaos like you. No one else cares for my soul like you. No one else has compassion on my weakness like you. Where else are we going to go? This is our only hope. I want you to, I want you to uh, participate with me as we close our service today. Not only are we going to serve you the Lord's Supper, if you've embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior, we're going to serve you the elements here in the Lord's Supper, the broken bread and the spilt blood, the very things Jesus was teaching in that, on that day 2,000 years ago. We're going to serve you the same, in the same way. But we're going to also ask you to to read responsibly through question 77 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is an explanation of the Lord's Supper. It's in your bulletin, it's also on the overhead, but I want you to listen closely to what is being said or the answer to the question that's being asked of you. So I'll be reading the fine print you read the bold print with me. And we'll start reading together. Pay close attention, please. So let's begin reading together question 77 from the Heidelberg Catechism. Where does Christ promise to nourish and refresh believers with his body and blood as surely as they eat this broken and drink? Here's the answer. Listen to it. In the institution of the Lord's Supper. So he's asking, the question is, where does Christ promise to nourish and refresh us come from? Christ is offering spiritual nourishment to everyone who will participate. Where does that come from? From the Lord's Supper, from this. This is what Paul told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Lord Jesus... On the night when he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's read together. 
In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This promise is repeated by Paul in these words, the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not the sharing of the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing of the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are, are one body, for we all partake of one bread. This is what Jesus was teaching the crowd of 25,000. These are the words that were coming out of his mouth that Paul repeated, that Mark repeated, that John repeated. This is Christ offering himself this morning again to you through these elements, these pictures, offering himself to you to fill your needs, to satisfy your longings, to solve your chaos. Christ is the answer, not our solutions, not our remedies, not by sending the crowd away or taking an offering, no. It's by running to Christ Jesus and expecting everything he is and has to offer. What are you gonna to do today? Where else are you gonna go, as Peter says? So I'm gonna pray, and when I pray, I want the elders to come help me here. We're gonna serve you up front again, as we do normally. We'll serve you if, you if you know Christ, come up, we'll serve you. You can return to your seat and take the elements at your leisure. All right, pray with me. Father, your son Jesus Christ had so much to share while he was on this planet. This story that we've studied today, the story of feeding of the 5,000, not only reveals his compassionate heart for the physical needs of people, but also his compassionate heart for the spiritual needs of these same people, for us who have physical and spiritual needs. Lord, we, we run to you. We know there is no place else to go. No one else has the solution. No one else has the answers. And so we come joyfully, willingly, anxiously to you, expecting you to meet our needs, to fulfill our desires, to satisfy our souls. Thank you, Jesus, for these things. Amen.